everybody, I'm Patricia Duff and welcome to The Common Good. Uh, tonight we've got an extraordinary conversation, it's very important. But before we begin, I want to acknowledge a few honorables and familiar faces in our audience. From our honorary advisory board, uh, we've got Bernard Schwartz, Kay Koplovitz, Congresswoman Jane Harmon, Byron Ween, and Tom Rogers. Some of our VIPs are, include uh, Liz Robbins, Rick Reese, Ed Cox, Elizabeth Stevens, Bonnie Lautenberg. Um, our past speakers and hosts, we've got Julia Skull, Richard Solomon, Karen Meal, Bob Peterzak, Sally Menard, Ralph Dawson, and from the press and media, Aaron Moriarty and Judith Miller. So uh, thank you. And thanks to all the others uh, out there who work so hard on American issues. Uh, thanks for joining us tonight. Um, so please, this tonight, use the, the uh, raise hand option if you've got a question or, or, or write a, a question to me in the chat. But I think you're going to enjoy tonight's discussion. It's, it's very important. I mean, I'm assuming that if we'd had this event just two weeks ago, this conversation might be far different. In recent months, the gears of our democracy have been grinding as our new president took the reins of power but lost popularity in the polls, dropping from net approved to disapproved. Now the president has had to focus on the outside world with the shocking and ongoing invasion by Russia to subjugate Ukraine, a fledgling democracy with a brave and inspiring leader. So tonight we're gonna to talk about how this and our own homegrown troubles in progress affect our leader and our nation. And we've got a tremendous panel tonight as we do each time we meet at the Common Good to share their sharp and informative insights with these uh, incredible thinkers. So tonight, please welcome a dear friend and a keen and knowledgeable observer of the American political landscape, Ron Brownstein. He's not only a CNN senior political analyst, but a senior writer at the Atlantic and Atlantic Media's editorial director and senior and long-term editorial strategy. He's written six books, most recently, The Second Civil War, How Extreme Partisanship Has Paralyzed Washington and Polarized America. And he's a two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist Great to see you, Ron. Thanks, Patricia. And we've honored David Gergen in the past, and we are honored to have him back with us tonight. He knows about presidents. He's advised four of them from both parties, Nixon, Ford, Reagan, and Clinton. And now he's helping shape future leaders as a professor and founding director of the Center for Public Leadership at, at the Harvard Kennedy School. He's been a member of election coverage and political analysis teams that have won Peabody's and Emmys. In the late 1980s, he was a chief editor of US News and World Report, working with publisher Mort Zuckerman, a former honorary board advisor for the common good. Welcome back, David. Great to see you. It's good to see you. Tara Setmeyer is a longtime expert on political communications who has worked with the House GOP caucus, but left the GOP in 2020 in reaction to Donald Trump's refusal to concede the election to Joe Biden. She's been working with the Lincoln Project and to uphold democratic norms and laws and currently serves as resident scholar at the University of Virginia Center for Politics when she isn't commenting on CNN, ABC News, The View, Bill Maher, and a few other programs. No wonder she was recognized as one of 2016's top 20 election coverage stars. Great to see you again, Tara. Thanks for coming back. Thank you so much for having me back. And to help lead the conversation, we're thrilled to have Molly Ball, who I've wanted to get for a long time. She's Time Magazine's national political correspondent 
who recently penned the cover story for Time on Biden's first year, among other important stories. She's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Pelosi, and has also covered US politics for The Atlantic and Politico, and has received numerous awards for her political coverage. Molly, thank you so much for joining us. And now it's my pleasure to pass this on to you. Thank you so much, Patricia. Thank you all so much for coming. Uh, and thank you uh, to our, our, our wonderful panelists. I'm sure that this time is going to uh, fly by because there's so much to discuss. But I do want to start by uh, giving each of you a turn to just give a sort of top line, a grade if you even want to be so bold, um, just the, in the big picture. Uh, how do you feel like the administration is doing? No need to limit it to the first year specifically if you want to incorporate you know, the State of the Union, uh, the current situation overseas. Uh, but David, I will, I will throw it to you first. Uh, what is your overall assessment? Um, and, and, and I think for this portion, I want to focus more on performance than perception, if that makes sense, right? How would you evaluate uh, not necessarily the, the perception of this administration, but just the pure performance of it so far? Uh, it's been a roller coaster, hasn't it? I thought the president got off to a very good start. The first hundred days, it seemed to me, it was quite promising, not only for what he was doing, but for what he was promising in his team. I, I've been, I'm actually impressed with the number of people in his team. I think they're more experienced and more thoughtful than some teams we've seen in the recent past, uh, you know, starting with Ron Klain, but others on that group. Um, and so I, I was coming out of the first 100 days, I thought this is one of the most promising presidencies we've had in a long time. I don't think it's of FDR stature by, by any means, but nonetheless uh, impressive. And then we had Afghanistan. And I think that in many ways was the turning point uh, it, because the, the differences on, on Afghanistan and, the, and it really turned, it wasn't just a policy question. It was a moral question of what we were leaving behind. And I think that 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 alienated the military folks, of course, a great deal. But I think it also had a very big impact on his presidency from which he's never really fully uh, recovered. And now and now there's, the, this is a presidency now, I would have to say we're in most, most unpredictable time for a new president that I can remember. Uh, it's, it's really been because in so many different ways, these questions are unresolved yet about the, about the pandemic, about inflation, about Ukraine, which is growing on it of growing importance. So I don't, I can't tell exactly where we're going. I do think, I think he's probably in too deep a hole to really pull it, pull it out in the midterm elections for the House. He may have better prospects for doing better than anybody thought in the Senate. But I think, I think overall, he's been badly wounded uh, by the events of the first year. So that even if he does improve a lot, things come together, get some breakthroughs, inflation gets down, the Ukraine somehow miraculously is settled. Uh, then he's got a chance to rally, but I don't think he can do very well. I don't think he can rally sufficiently to take back and keep the House. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, is going to have an enormous impact on his governance in the final two years of the first term. Right, right, definitely. Okay, well, Tara, I will go to you next. Same question. What's your... Oh, did you want to give a grade, David? <laughs> I, well, I, I'm, uh, right now, as of tonight, B+. All right. Uh, how about you, Tara? What, what is your overall assessment of, of the performance of this administration so far? Well, I would agree with David um, uh, as far as a B plus. Um, and it has been a roller coaster. In the beginning, I think uh, the American people gave a collective exhale sigh of relief that the adults were in the room now um, coming uh, out of the 
the COVID chaos of the last presidency and, and Biden's administration was able to administer the vaccines and have some semblance of order there, uh, which is very encouraging. And then I think uh, even before Afghanistan, the, the Delta surge certainly upset that good feeling that, that the American people were having about po possibly coming out of, of the, the COVID nightmare. Um, and then Afghanistan was the next big inflection point, which did certainly change the, the momentum in, in, in the wrong way for the Biden administration. <clears throat> and then in the fall, um, where there was an opportunity to uh, right the ship a little bit with the infrastructure accomplishment, which was a bipartisan bill, which was something that we hadn't seen in a very long time. And we all know that Infrastructure Week became a political joke for those of us in, in, in politics because it, uh, it just would never happen. And here was an opportunity to have uh, to point to legislation where there was bipartisan accomplishment and agreement, which was something that the Biden campaign ran, ran on, his ability to bring uh, Republicans across the aisle and his decades of experience in Washington. And unfortunately, the Democrats can't seem to get out of their own way at times um, and, and trying to um, get a little too much, uh, adding Build Back Better onto that in, in the mix, I think really hurt the momentum that Biden could have gotten from that victory of getting infrastructure passed, which was good for everyone. Um, there was a, a significant political upside to that that was squandered because of the infighting. Uh, and then as we, as we came out of the year, uh, you had low unemployment though, and the economy was doing well, but inflation was again, it was like he takes two, two steps forward and 10 steps back. Uh, you can't catch a break. Um, the break I think that he is catching now though, is in fact what's happening in Ukraine because it reminds the American people the importance of the role of the president as leader of the free world, galvanizing a um, Western democracies and pretty much all of the democracies of the world behind fighting a common enemy. And um, I think that that is something that's giving, that, that will give a boost to Biden in polling and showing that um, where people can see where leadership and experience matter um, and that can help him. Whether they can ride that momentum into midterms, that remains to be seen. I'm, I'm as skeptical as, as David is, unfortunately. But I think overall, um, the Biden administration deserves a, a B plus. All right. Well, how about you, Ron? Do you uh, share that assessment? And what would you add to that? Well, I would say that uh, I think Biden has struggled to be the president that he promised voters that he would be. Uh, I think his core identity as a candidate was uh, someone who's steady, calm, competent, uh, a elder statesman who would lower the temperature if not bring the parties together, which was always kind of unrealistic given uh, the underlying forces, centrifugal forces in American politics. And, you know, in the first few months, um, uh, it, it, it appeared as though he was kind of able to step into those shoes. I mean, I think, you know, the ability to get the vaccination uh, vaccines out at the magnitude that he did, the passage of the, of the Rescue Act, uh, other steps they took early on on COVID. I mean, it's just impossible to imagine anything like that kind of vaccine distribution uh, under Trump. And, and, you know, we kind of have forgotten the magnitude of that achievement, but it, it, it is a, a real achievement and something that, you know, it just it would have, you could, you could easily imagine the chaos in trying to do that. But as, as the year went on, I think that their own miscalculations and events 
um, kind of pushed him, made voters question whether he was really delivering the kind of leadership uh, that he promised. I mean, Afghanistan really put, you know, a, a punctured the balloon, the idea that the, this was uh, a, a competent foreign policy a team after all of the chaos of Trump. The miscalculation, I think the fundamental miscalculation of kind of overestimating his ability to bring mansion and cinema in line for anything meaningful, um, uh, you know, punctured the idea that he was kind of the, the legislative master after decades uh, in, the, in, the, in the Senate. Um, the miscalculation on inflation, you know, I mean, it's true there were not a lot of, a lot of people warning uh, them early on that the the rescue plan might be too big, but there was one big one. David's colleague or neighbor up there, uh, Larry Summers, uh, you know, uh, the former Treasury Secretary, um, who had become a very polarizing figure to the left, and so they kind of uh, they kind of brushed that off. Uh, and then obviously Delta um, undermined. Uh, kind of the claim that you know that they that they that the that they had been able to wrestle uh, um, COVID uh, uh, to the ground, and so all of these way I think all of these four big developments: Delta, inflation, Afghanistan, and the collapse of the legislative agenda, uh, raised serious doubts uh, in the, in the minds of many voters about whether Biden, you know, was in control of events, you know, and, and which is above all what you ask of a president. Um, uh, and, and he looked to be reactive and ineffective. Um, I, you know, to borrow from Michael Dukakis, I think the problem has been more competence than ideology. I don't think the fundamental problem is ideology. It's that, it's that uh, it, the conditions have deteriorated and he doesn't seem to have effective answers for that. And so I will join the list. Look, there, you know, Republicans, Molly, you may know this number. Republicans have to win five seats to win the House. In all of the midterm elections since uh, the Civil War, the party out of power has won at least five seats in all but four of them. So, you know, the anomaly would not be if Democrats, you know, it, it's, it's not going to be a shock if Democrats lose the House. Um, the big question is whether they can hold the losses to the point where they can plausibly win it back in any kind of uh, time frame going down the road. The Senate is different. The story is not as consistent there. And there is an advantage in geography in that seven, I think, of the 10 states that are probably at the top of the target list for the two parties are in states that Biden won. Uh, but Biden has to improve his approval rating. I mean, there's no question about it. One of the most powerful trends in modern politics is the tightening correlation between attitudes toward the president and votes for uh, down ballot candidates. And uh, Biden has to regain some ground uh, in order for Democrats to have a fighting chance uh, in both holding down the House losses and maybe maintaining the Senate. He does have a little bit of a tailwind in the um, uh, in the declining caseload uh, and the ability of people to kind of step back into something more approaching normal life. Um, uh, and Ukraine is giving him a kind of a second chance at delivering the kind of foreign policy president that he promised voters and did not display in Afghanistan, but looming all, of, all over all of that are gas prices and inflation. And it's just hard to see a big sustained recovery for any president when gas prices are as hard, high as they are now. So that's kind of my take. And do you want to give a grade or or not? Ah, uh, you know, I, not really. But I, I would say <laughs> that uh, in terms of delivering what they thought they wanted to uh, do, I would give them something closer to a B. Um, and uh, understanding that it's a, a very tough environment, maybe on a curve, I, I grade that up to a B plus. Okay. Well, and I'll stick with you for a minute, Ron, because you know, as I'm sure 
um, you've heard when you when you talk to the administration, uh, they do feel like a lot of the criticism is unfair, right? And we heard Biden himself say in his last press conference, I don't believe the polls uh, doesn't really think these, you know, second lowest approval rating of any president at this juncture in history doesn't really think that that the voters assessment, I guess, is fair uh, of what they've actually done. And, and, and a lot of the things you listed are sort of circumstances beyond the White House's control. But at the same time, you've sort of articulated this common thread of them having, you know, promised potentially things that they can't deliver or, or even ignoring contrary voices, right, who raised warnings about uh, everything from Afghanistan to, 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 to COVID to inflation. Uh, so how much of the uh, low approval rating do you think is, is the president's fault and, and how much would you uh, chalk up to, to mistakes that he's made versus just circumstances outside his control? Or as you mentioned, the sort of just the underlying political conditions, the, the polarization of the country that makes it so different, difficult for any president in our modern era. Yeah, well, for that, that's a good, the, the, where you ended, Molly, is a good place to start because the ceiling is lower than it used to be, right? So um, presidents don't have as much cushion as they once did uh, in terms of public approval that they can, that can sustain them when conditions deteriorate. I mean, it's just, you know, you can't get that high anymore because uh, the other party is, you know, you're, you're, you're talking about Strong disapproval of Biden is as high among Republicans, higher, I think, in some polls than it was strong disapproval among Democrats was about Trump. And whatever else you can say about Biden, he is not as kind of, you know, uh, pugnacious and combative and polarizing a figure as Trump. It just kind of baked in at this point. Um, I think the principal problem he has is that Americans are dissatisfied with the direction of the country, okay, on multiple fronts, primarily uh, uh, on uh, inflation and COVID. Um, it, it, the decline in his approval is not unusual. It's, it, it's what you would expect for a president uh, when the share of voters who are saying the country is on the wrong track is as high as it is. I mean, it's not out of his approval rating, I think now is something like 15 to eight to 20 points higher than the share of voters who say the country is on the right track, which is about normal for a president. So, you know, the big question, it seems to me, is whether he has sustained damage that will prevent him from recovering if and when the country grows more optimistic about the way things are going. At, at a broad level, what he is experiencing in the first two years, and, and David lived through one of this and was, was, helped, was brought in to help deal with it, is not that different than what Reagan, Clinton, and Obama dealt with. They were all elected at a moment of extreme dissatisfaction with, with the direction of the country. Not shockingly, that's when the White House changes partisan hands, when people are, are dissatisfied with the way things are going in the country. So in 80, 92, and 2008, you know, they were elected. They came in. There was a small kind of rally effect of optimism. Uh, if you look at the polling and Gallup and others, more people saying things were going in, a, in the right direction in the country. And then you know, reality set in and things either didn't improve as fast as people expected or their perception of how things were going in more in Clinton's case didn't improve as fast as 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 uh, events warranted. And the press, you know, and right track declined through their first year, their approval rating declined uh, and, and it kind of plummeted down through their second year uh, and resulted in big losses uh, in the midterm, especially for Clinton and Obama. But then what happened? And it, it, it's a very similar story for all three of them in the second half of their of their first term. Uh, the economy kind of straightened out. 
People got more optimistic about the way things were go going. Their approval rating recovered, less for Obama than the other two, reflecting the, the polarization, and they won a second term. So, I, you know, the, the, at one level, Biden would seem to be totally out. He's ridden that wave down, right? I mean, th in theory, if inflation recedes and COVID recedes and right track improves, he should be able to ride it up. But the big question is whether there are now holes in his boat that would prevent this rising tide from lifting him. And that will be whether voters have decided that he's not up to the job or too old for the job and he doesn't improve if right track improves. And I guess we're gonna find that out Probably, I agree with David, uh, and uh, we're probably going to find that out after 2022 because it's unlikely that right track is going to significantly improve between now and then. But to me, that's the question. Is he capable of recovering if the country's mood uh, improves the way Reagan, Clinton, and Obama did? Well, that's a, I'll, I'll put that exact question to you, Tara. Ron, thank you for making my job easier by uh, mm -hmm. posing the next question. Uh, but do you think he's he's capable of turning it around, uh, of improving, at, or, or do you think that voters have so lost faith, uh, particularly in the in the competence question, the leadership question, uh, that that he's that they've just turned their backs? I think that's contingent upon uh, some external factors. Um, I think let's give let's, let's use the State of the Union as an example. Um, uh, he overperformed clearly in the State of the Union. I think a lot of people were watching that um, with a lot of interest to see how he came across because there have been times during some of the press conferences um, where you know folks were also paying attention to how is Biden going to perform because they wanted to see does he have the stamina is he up for it can he remember the the two hour press conference that he had where he just kept going and much to the chagrin of his press shop I'm sure <laughs> uh, as a former comms person uh, I I understood their pain when he said oh keep going you want to go for another two another hour and the press was like yeah you never asked you you know Molly sure we'll ask as many questions as you let us um, but he, again, he overperformed. I think it, it, almost every opportunity where they have put him out there that way, he has stepped up to the plate, thankfully. Um, but during the everyday, sometimes I think you have to consider that the, not only do they have to deal with their own caucus, right, with their own um, fissures within the Democratic Party, because I think there's something a, a bit different about the level of party unity that we're seeing or lack thereof for Democrats. I, I, I can't remember, and David and Ron can correct me if I'm wrong, the last time you saw this, this public, this level of public um, disloyalty within the party in power uh, for a president, I can't remember in recent times, last time that's happened. And that hurts the situation because it looks like Biden doesn't have control of his, of, of his party. Uh, that doesn't help. Then you have the right-wing ecosystem that has an apparatus, a media apparatus that is constantly pushing out the idea that Biden's not up to the job. And that's something else that's unique, different than what we've seen in the past. We've never had the amount of, um, uh, well, propaganda, I would call it on, on one side, but there is the, the level of mass communication and the different areas where you can get that information and how you get that information is so different than when Reagan was in, was in office and Michael Deaver was able to craft these wonderful messages, uh, right, David, and and uh, be you know for Reagan to be the great communicator because you didn't have all of these different ancillary ways to to get information and have to control them. So there's so many 
factors here that are not in Biden's favor that I think that they need to make some adjustments. Instead of being reactive to Ron's point, they, they've seemed a bit reactive to things. Republicans have shown their playbook many times. It's, this isn't new. And so what they're doing isn't new. They're just modernizing it. I think Democrats in the White House need to modernize how they go about getting their messaging out, how they go about putting Biden in situations that make him look presidential, that can that are in situations where the American people can look at him and say, yes, he's in control. Um, you know, Democrats have a tendency to be a little more cautious, I think, at times. Um, and I think that they need to be realize that you're going to have to be a bit more aggressive in this. You've got to be more proactive. And the, the Ukraine situation, foreign policy is always a great opportunity for that. It depends on what happens. But um, I, I think that they need to really, they really need to lean into the accomplishment so far of what Biden has done in bringing the world together against the common foe. And Russia is an easy target. Everyone understands that. Um, so whether they're able to accomplish that or not, I don't know. I, can he recover from it? I'm not quite sure. Like I said, there are so many external factors that are not in his favor that I don't know that they are um, fully capable of, of putting, getting that all together and course correcting before the midterms. What happens after that? If, if, they, lose the, if they lose the House, it's going to be absolute chaos in Washington. We've seen that there will be nothing done um, and if the Senate remains with Democrats, at least there'll be some buffer there. But you're you're going to see gridlock, you know, similar, probably worse than we've ever seen before. Um, and I don't know that the old playbook of the elder statesman and the way things used to work in Washington doesn't apply to the group in Washington now. Um, and the, the sooner that Biden realizes that, the sooner the White House realizes that, uh, the sooner they can course correct and try to be a bit more proactive and aggressive. Tara, I am just shocked and appalled that you don't think Speaker of the House Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to be a constructive force uh, working with the White House. Right. Uh, I've often said Speaker of the House Jim Jordan because um, ah. it will never it will never be Kevin McCarthy, despite his his best efforts to try to um, ingratiate himself to Donald Trump and and the base. It Kevin McCarthy will never be Speaker of the House. I've said it. I've said it many times, I'll say it again today. And I floored our friend Jonathan Capehart on a Sunday show when I said, Democrats better get it together or they're going to wake up to a, a Speaker of the House, Jim Jordan, next year. And he, he almost passed out on the show. But let's be honest, I mean, anything is possible if you look at what's happening in the Republican side of things, but that's a different discussion. Yeah, it sounds like you and I need to need to make a bet after this conversation. <laughs> uh, but David, if they brought you in today to do the kind of uh, rescue mission uh, that, that Ron mentioned, um, what would be your, your strategic advice to try to right the ship? And, and, and while you're putting that forward, do you see evidence that, that they're trying to do that? Well, what, the, what are they trying to do? I, what they really ought to do is pray. Um, I, think they've got a, I think they've got a tough, tough road back. Let me ask Ron about the numbers for a second. Ron, it, it, my memory has been that usually a president, incumbent president, who is under 50% in approval goes into, it almost automatically loses the house or loses its number of seats in the house. Yeah. But 50 is the number. How, where's the number in your mind, given the yeah. fact he's 41% now, where is the number 
you know, uh, I think because because the ceiling has come down so much, David, I think, and Molly, you should weigh in here too. I, I've talked to professionals who basically say it's like 47 now, that uh -huh. at 47 approval for a president in a state or, or they feel like they have a fighting chance at winning the, the Senate race. And if he's at 47 nationally, 46, 47, they feel like they have a chance of winning the House. But I mean, the basic pattern is that since we've gone from the 80s in the 80s, and 90s in exit polls and the ANES data and all the different data we have, roughly three quarters of the people who approved of the president voted for his party's candidates in house races and roughly three quarters to four fifths who disapproved voted against them. That's closer to 90% on both sides now. It's like the high 80s and routinely in the 90s, even in Senate races where these candidates are spending tens of millions of dollars, um, you know, in theory, establishing an independent identity, you still see, you know, take a South Carolina uh, race, you know, in 90 something percent of Trump voters uh, voting against the, the Democrat and 90 percent uh, of Biden voters voting for it. I think the best any Democrat did in 2020, even spending hundreds of millions of dollars, was running about a point and a half ahead of Biden in their state. Right. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think that was I think that was uh, what's his name in Montana ran about a point and a half better. Uh, that's that's it. I mean, it's just there's just very little give now. So uh, it is it is a key factor, but you may be able to get away slightly under yeah. 50 in the modern but era. My experience has been also with economic when the economy is getting better. Public approval is sort of a, a lagging indicator. Mm -hmm. It's behind it's behind the economists and giving credit to a president. And that's why I think the hill for him to climb is, is steeper. But let me make a couple of other points, Molly. They go to or uh, I'd like to put a couple of things on the table. One is um, there's something about Joe Biden that I had not expected. I, I really felt he would connect well with the public, that they would see him as an empathic figure, certainly a wonderful change since Trump. Um, and there was there were so much out there that was appealing. But I, I sense now that the, the voters don't really like him all that much. Uh, they and they they're really not sure he's he is up to the job that he uh, he's um, you know is the age whatever whatever the issues are. I, I think he's now he's he's they hide him too much. I, he's got some really big big issues. Each one of the four kind of pillar issues we've talked about, he should have taken time on each one of those. And now on, on and now on, on Ukraine to talk to the American people and take things. He'll be, he always puts his statements during the day as if he's hiding. He, he ought to be on prime time occasionally. He ought to be out there taking questions. He's very good on his feet, better than I expected. But somehow he's not. I don't think he's connecting very well. And obviously their message team's got a lot to learn coming over the in the days ahead. But let me make one other go to one other issue. I, I think this Ukraine situation almost takes us into a different universe from what presidents deal with. We've never had, we've never been sitting on the sidelines watching television at night and seeing the genocide underway. It's just, it's just unfathomable what's happening. And I, and I do think that Biden deserves credit for uh, getting the, the Western nations more aligned to get them working together but I think that that's not going to be the end of how judgments are made about him historically. It's really going to be how does this all come out in the end? If 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 the, if the West refuses to give the Zelensky what he wants, and Zelensky is killed, or a lot more people continue to be killed, there's going to be a sense 
that they, they, that they wanted to do the right thing, but it just didn't work. And you don't get points for anything like that. That, that, that is sort of, a, if anything, this can't be a genocide that succeeds. I don't, I don't understand why there isn't sort of a, a really aggressive effort inside the administration to come up with more things they can do that make sense and to begin looking at this in a fresh way. Where is the United Nations, for example? Why can't we get some peacekeepers in there? I know we'll have face vetoes uh, from the Chinese and from the Russians, uh, but you can get a coalition of the willing. And I, I can't quite understand why would he, we're just gonna ride this out on the sidelines when this terrible, terrible killing goes on. And I, and I do believe what we've never watched genocide on television either. Uh, and it just, it tears at you. And I think it's going to have unpredictable impact on Joe Biden as president. Yeah, and he obviously has has uh, little control on on how the uh, the war, the invasion, the genocide ultimately turns out. I mean, Tara, do you think uh, that that they've handled the situation well, particularly when it comes to that uncertainty uh, that David's talking about? About you know, and, and what is your sense also of of sort of how much the American people? To be crass about it, care about what's happening uh, so far from here, particularly when we have a population uh, that I think has has been quite quite war weary in recent years. What's your sense of that? So I think that uh, the American people clearly care more about Ukraine than when Mike Pompeo claimed that the American people didn't give an f about Ukraine during the uh, impeachment process. Uh, lovely words from our former Secretary of State. <laughs> um, so they certainly care now to David's point, because we're watching it from the comfort of our living rooms every every evening in absolute horror, what's happening and feeling like we should be doing more. So where the, um, the interest level is certainly much higher because it's being beamed into our living rooms and on, on our phones every day. Um, and that's, we've never, that we've never had that. Even, even the war on terror wasn't quite like that. Um, the closest we came would probably be, you know, when we first saw this, it, this phenomenon of watching it in real time was Desert Storm. Um, and then, you know, with, with the advent of technology, we get in 24-hour news, uh, news stations, we see more and more, but nothing like this, where it's an oversaturation of it. So I think there is certainly an interest, but to David's point as well, that the administration, if it's, they deserve credit for, for now, but if people feel as though watching maternity wards and, and hospitals and, and, and families being killed, uh, that the United States doesn't do something, um, it, they, it could turn because then people can feel like the United States is weak. And what happened? We are the leaders of the free world. Why, why are we not leading the charge here? Um, and I, I think that there is a danger there if the administration continues to be too cautious. Now, we're also dealing with a nuclear, you know, a nuclear power, and and that's that. This is very different than Syria or Bosnia or Afghanistan and Iraq. Completely different. But the average American doesn't understand those dynamics. They just see bad guys. America, we're better, stronger. We're the good guys. Why can't we fix this? And I think the administration has to do a better job of at least um, explaining to the American people, again, to David's point, there should be some uh, primetime addresses when there's something this serious. That's what we, that's what those are for. Um, I don't know why they keep doing these during the day. I've, I've questioned that myself also a few times. 
Um, because if it is, you want the American people to believe it's serious, then it needs to be done in prime time. It's not just a regular order of business between nine and five. We're not, you know, you know, announcing new tax rates. So I think that there are some things that the administration could do to show at least some more aggression um, as far, again, it's just being proactive. It's back to my point about they need to be proactive. And in this situation, it could go either way, depending on what the outcome is or how this goes. Uh, they're, they're expecting Scranton Uncle Joe to step up then and show, you know, you're going to punch the bully in the face. However, diplomatically you do that because you're, you're balancing a lot of, uh, a lot of interests, uh, not just ours, you know, with Europe, um, but the sanctions and seeing the, the uh, American companies coming out and pulling out of Russia or ceasing operations there. These are companies that are familiar to the average American. So that makes it feel like, okay, this is good. You know, we're, we're doing something, the coalition of the willing in the corporate sector, um, we're putting pressure on Putin. Um, but they, yeah, they, they, it really all comes down to perception. Perception is reality in politics. It doesn't matter if Joe Biden is, is behind the scenes doing all of these wonderful things to keep the coalition together. If the American people don't think he's, he's doing that, it doesn't matter. So I, 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 um, I'm hoping that they're able to, it, as these things progress, if it gets, if it doesn't seem to get any better or things get worse in Ukraine, which a lot of our a lot of the experts on the ground think it will, then they have to come up with something that shows the American people that we're not just sitting back and letting it happen. Is it though, I mean, it, it, it almost sounds like, a, a, at least politically, a sort of unwinnable situation for in, in the long run where you know the administration clearly sees that if they were to do something like commit troops or, or escalate uh, our involvement in the war to that level, they would lose the public. But, but I'm also hearing that there's a feeling they're going to lose the public if if they're seen as weak or or not doing enough, or if the if if this conflict that that we that we are on the sidelines of ends up uh, you know spiraling and 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 going on a long time. I mean, Ron, do you think there's there's any way of, of squaring that circle for the administration? Well, as I was listening to Tara and David, I was thinking that in many ways, Ukraine is a microcosm for the, the whole presidency in the way that all of us have been describing it, in the sense that as the crisis began, uh, people looked at Biden as a more stable, calm, competent force. I mean, it is, it's worth taking a second to try to imagine how this would be unfolding if Donald Trump was president. And all of the, the divisions that he would be creating in the Western alliance, and it's inconceivable that there would be anything like uh, the level of coordination or economic and uh, response that we have seen from a quite effectively united Western world. And in that sense, it's kind of similar in my mind to what we saw in the first few months on vaccine production and distribution and all of those other kinds of things. But the risk to Biden is that that initial goodwill and that sense that he is providing more competent, stable leadership uh, ultimately can be threatened. Uh, if you remember that I, that I, what, what I, what most analysts that I talk to believe is his core problem with the public is they feel that he is sort of, you know, overmatched by events and is not in control uh, of events. And so to, to the points of Tara and David, if they, if they look, certainly I think most Americans feel more comfortable with uh, Joe Biden and his team making the decision about what's too provocative and what risks blowing up the whole world than Donald Trump making that decision and his team. I, I, I think 
that Biden would win that comparison if someone asked it in a poll, not vastly, but they they would win it. Um, but there is a risk that, um, it, you know, in their kind of steady elder statesman caution, uh, that they look like they are, you know, allowing events to overrun them. Um, and it may be, you know, we, you know, we did not watch Hungary or Czechoslovakia in the same way in 56 or 68. I mean, these are horrific, tragic stories. And in the past, presidents have decided that we cannot take the risk of trying to stop them because at, at the end of that confrontation might be, you know, the obliteration of New York, Chicago and Los Angeles. Um, and it may be that Biden ultimately has to end up in the same place, but if he is ending up there, at the least, as, as both of my colleagues were suggesting, he needs to explain that to the American public, because I do think as things go on, as time goes on and the, the, the horror mounts, um, uh, people need to understand if there's a good reason why we are not doing more, they need to hear it. Or else uh, I think he's back in the same position where he looks <clears throat> like events are overrunning him. Uh, well, I, I regret to inform you that uh, according to a series of uh, misspelled, poorly punctuated email statements I have received from the office of uh, former President Trump, this would not have happened mm -hmm. if he was president and also Putin is a genius. So, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, uh, but yeah. I do want to spend a little bit of time on, um, and, we, and we'll go to questions, uh, um, as Patricia said, around 5.50, so start thinking of those. But I do want to spend a little bit of time on uh, the COVID situation and the domestic agenda. Um, how damaging, David, do you think it has been uh, that this that by Bi that Biden hasn't been able to get that big Build Back Better package uh, through the Congress? Uh, and 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 do you think it's still alive, or do you think in in some form, or do you think that's over? I'm not the right person about whether it's going to get through the Congress or not. Uh, my sense is it's you're not going to see the big bill get through. Pieces of it still could make it, uh, but but nonetheless. I, I uh, look. I, I I think that you have to look back upon what happened in the closing months with the negotiations when they broke down and everything like that. That that was really fumbled. Um, they seem to be more uh, together now. They seem. I, you know. I think that they're a little being a little more thoughtful about it. Uh, maybe they've learned some lessons. I did feel. I, did, I briefly on the Ukraine. One of the things I thought about the Ukraine putting people together was they were a lot better at doing things like that than they had been in Afghanistan. They learned some lessons from Afghanistan that they then applied, and I assume in the same way, they've learned some lessons about how to deal with the Congress and how to, you know, not get your messaging so screwed up um, that they'll be they'll be more competent at it. Uh, I don't think they're going to get many more big results, but I think at least their competence numbers uh, might go up a bit. Uh, well, how about you, Tara? Do you think that um, that that's been a big piece of uh, of the disillusionment that people are feeling with the administration? That the sort of promise of the great deal maker, while it arguably worked on something like infrastructure, uh, hasn't been able to get the sort of bigger pieces of the agenda through through Congress. Absolutely, because people were expecting things to get done, because not much got done in the last administration. So. I think the Biden administration ran into an issue of overpromising a little bit and not anticipating not only the amount of intransigence on the part of the Republicans, I mean, that it should be baked into the cake, uh, but the amount of intransigence within their own caucus. I don't think they were sufficiently prepared for that. And um, it showed in the fall when the Build Back Better um, infrastructure debacle happened. So. Build Back Better is dead. 
in its current form. It's never coming back. You realize that Biden did not mention that at all during the State of the Union. So it's clearly they understand the political uh, climate here will not allow for a big bill like that. Um, but he did mention very popular parts of Build Back Better um, that could be passed possibly individually as uh, standalone bills or part of other packages. So um, from childcare to um, you know some other things that are that are a bit more popular. But you know this is this is part of the the learning curve that I don't think that they thought they needed and realized that they had that they had to that there was a learning curve for him too. Um, because the world is a very different place than it was. Congress and Washington are a very different place from when Joe Biden was vice president or when he was a senator. And I think that was a bit of a shock to him. I don't think he realized how different it was. And some of the people who he thought that he had relationships with, like Mitch McConnell and others from their years of being gentlemen in the Senate, he thought that those relationships would be able to carry him through for the good of the country, right? And <laughs> we saw that uh, there is really no level of hyperpartisanship that the Republicans will go to um, in order to damage his presidency, even if it's bad for the country. So the sooner that that Biden and his folks realize that, and again, it goes back to this course correction of being a bit more aggressive, they're going to, that the Scranton Joe is going to have to come out a bit more because I think the American people will respect that um, and let it put the onus on the Republicans for obstructing put the onus on them for being the party of no and having to explain why. Because if you get the Republicans explaining why they're not in support of X, Y, and Z to, um, uh, to help fix things or pass legislation or to govern, then it's less time that they can spend attacking Joe Biden because they have to explain themselves. So you know, we'll, we'll see. I just, uh, Republicans are much better at this. They have no shame. They've clearly demonstrated that. And mm. Democrats are still trying to be nice. And at some point, you're going to have to take the gloves off a little bit. Um, you don't ever want to become what you despise. But sometimes you have to be, um, you know, you got to step up and, and get in the face of the bully a little bit um, to let them know that you're not going to take it. And I, I think they have it in them. But you got to get back to the old scrappy Joe and see um, and, and try that. Because the nice guy thing isn't, isn't going to work when you have an enemy that is willing to say and do anything and be as dishonest as the Republicans have been, unfortunately. Well, what about the the proverbial X, Y, and Z? What about the policy piece of this? I mean, are the are, is the agenda that they've been pursuing the right agenda? The things that you know they they called it Build Back Better, right? Because the idea was going was that we were going to come out of COVID and rebuild the economy, rebuild society better than it was when we went into this crisis. Uh, and then the components ended up being you know a, a big chunk of of spending to address climate change. A uh, big chunk of spending on sort of social welfare policies, childcare, that kind of thing, uh, and we do hear a lot from the administration that all of these individual pieces are popular. But but do you think when it comes to like convincing the American people that this administration is in touch with the things that that, that Americans would like to see, the progress that Americans would like to see, do you think that they propose the right policies? Are they in the right place on sort of the left right spectrum, Tara? No, I think that the Build Back Better overall plan and what the progressives want is out of step with what the overall country wants. It's still a very right of center, a little left of center country. So some of those things were completely, you know, uh, they overstepped, they went too far. And you can't really start talking about those things when you have very basic kitchen table issues like gas prices and inflation. Um, staring people in the face every single day. No one wants to hear about carbon taxes. 
So they, and, and frankly, this is not going to be a policy election. You cannot bring a policy pen to political guerrilla warfare, which is what the Republicans are engaged in. Republicans are making this about a culture war. They're making this about, you know, parental rights. They're making this about, um, you know, mandates. We see this. The culture war is a very powerful tool to gin people up. And while, you know, Democrats may be well-intentioned with some of these policy initiatives, this is not a policy election. The Democrats, you know, prescription for healthcare reform is not what's going to change the tide here. So they have to come up with some, they have to go on offense. I often say that defense may win championships, but offense wins elections. And they have to start going on offense to go to push back on what's happening with Republicans and what they're saying, because they're focusing on, they're playing the, the short game in, the, in their districts. And that's what caught them by surprise, caught Democrats by surprise in the off-year elections in November. They need to study that and take a look at what they missed and make sure that that doesn't happen again coming up into midterms. Well, so this, and there is sort of a lively debate about this, right? Because there is a school of thought that says they need to, to, to go on offense, particularly against the, the, the crazier elements of, of the Republican Party. But then does that risk squandering whatever uh, unifying aspects of, of Biden's brand uh, are, are still out there? I mean, David, do you think that, uh, that that's just no longer on the table and he's got to uh, create a foil? Or is there still an opportunity to, to, to have that unifying stature? I, look, I think the biggest problem, he, he tried to do too much too quickly without the majorities he needed to get anything done. Uh, and, you know, my experience with the White House has been, if you take on one big issue or two or three big issues, you can handle that in the White House. But if you're trying to solve six or seven or eight problems simultaneously, you can't juggle the, that many balls at the same time out of the White House. The staff is too small. The analysis, the political stuff you have to go through just isn't, they're just not capable of doing that well. And I, th I thought from the beginning, uh, he, he should have simplified his agenda, have two or three things that were really important, keep hammering away on those, get the progress and get something through and win trust from people, win, win a sense of confidence from people that you can then go on and do the next two or three things. But don't try to do nine things at one time. It, it, and that just gets totally in your way. So I think right now he needs to regroup and he has to come back with one or two or three things he wants to get done before, uh, the, before the midterm elections. And also I think he's got to sort of come up with some better solutions on this Ukraine thing. Let me just say one more thing about Ukraine. That I think it's worth keeping our eye on China right now because we know that, that Putin made a decision to, to go into Ukraine after he saw what he perceived as weakness of the United States on Afghanistan. If the Chinese now look at what's going on in Ukraine and think that, you know, Biden is, you know, had used to have a club in the closet for the president, but then now they've thrown it out. They may well go after Taiwan in the next, in the next two years. That's a very, very real possibility. If they think the Americans will not, you know, will not actually fight in order to preserve something like that, why not go for it now? It is, uh, it's a terrifying thing to think about. I'm gonna go to your questions now. We've got a lot of great questions, uh, both uh, in the chat and people who have their hands up. So I am going to, uh, so when I, when I call your name, uh, unmute yourself and say hello and ask your question. Uh, Jane Harmon, we are going to start with you. 
Well, thank you and hello to many, many good friends on this call. I thought the conversation so far is very interesting. Uh, an, an observation which, which leads to a question. Uh, the observation is, as someone who has run for office many times, voters expect you to be authentic. And Scranton Joe is what Biden has been all those 50 years in the Senate. However, he got elected and he moved left, which stunned a lot of people. Uh, rumor has it that Ron Klain thought that was the better move. I don't know if that's true or it isn't true, uh, but it surprised people. It didn't feel like Biden. And I think the middle uh, is not only perplexed, but fighting for its life uh, in the Democratic Party. And the chance to uh, woo the middle of the Republican Party so far has, has eluded them. That's, that's my comment. Uh, it, it, so how do we get his authenticity back? I think, uh, as, as somebody said a few months ago, he's got to get out and about in the countryside and discuss uh, bread and butter issues with voters. That is what they care about. The Ukraine thing was is a problem from hell, nothing that he that he asked for. Uh, he has to manage that, but I think he's managing that very well. I think it's the other stuff, uh, inflation and uh, um, lower drug prices and a few things that he has said that are very popular uh, that he's not managing well because he's not being himself. And I just wonder if, if you agree that he's kind of blown the opportunity to be Scranton Joe, which is how he would get his poll numbers up. Uh, I don't know if anybody's is jumping at the chomping at the bit to take that or if Ron you want to you yeah, want to um, answer the, the question. Uh, well, I, I guess I feel like his problem, his fundamental problem is not ideology, it's competence and conditions. Um, I think ideology, I think, I think that the core mistake he made was underestimating how much how resistant cinema and mansion would be to this encompassing democratic agenda. And maybe uh, he, he never should have proposed it without no, having them on board. But I mean, like when we were talking before, I mean, he does not have a problem with the democratic caucus. He has a problem with mansion and cinema. I mean, there are every other Democrat in both chambers, every democratic governor, I believe every democratic mayor would be willing to pass what ultimately, uh, he theoretically shook hands on with with Manchin, uh, you know, who has proven himself to be, you know, pretty mercurial for a, uh, you know, for 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 a senator, um, uh, and and so I, I I you know I think that I think that the you know it is true as we were saying before that you know that the 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 support for individual components of the agenda doesn't line you know that doesn't matter that much because. We've seen really for 50 years, Republicans have had success at, um, at not so much debating the individual points of a democratic agenda, but arguing that the cumulative package costs too much and will increase inflation and require raising taxes. And all of those arguments are there. Um, where I agree with you, Jane, is I think that, you know, one thing, and David, David's lived through this too. Um, it's pretty amazing. Uh, but when inflation is out there, it's an invasive plant species. It tends to, you know, take all the oxygen uh, yeah. and it's something the voters feel in their daily lives multiple times in a way that they feel almost nothing else, not even the job market or the stock market is, is in your face as much as inflation. And as long as that's the case, that's what voters want to see you working on. So the attempt to repackage existing elements of 
build back better, particularly childcare costs, drug costs, health costs, uh, and, and trying to frame, and this is a little bit more of a stretch, the, the, uh, the green parts of it as helping you with utility costs, that makes a lot of sense, but it still runs back into the same issue. Is Manchin going to let you do anything? Or does he think that the value to him of being seen as the one Democrat who will throw sand in the gears and stand up to all the other Democrats exceeds whatever benefit uh, you know, will come to the party uh, from doing this? Um, I thought the repackaging, I think Tara was saying this too, I think the repackaging of this in the State of the Union made a lot of sense because it showed him talking about what voters care about at this point the most, which is their daily cost of living. Um, but again, Manchin is making and Cinema are making a very different calculation than literally every other elected Democrat. They are, they are calculating that there is more value to them in being seen as stopping the party, as being seen as the maverick who says no to other Democrats, than there is in all of these tangible things that they would be able to, to claim credit for, universal pre-K, you know, expanded childcare subsidies, healthcare subsidies, $35 a month insulin. By the way, 30% of seniors in West Virginia are diabetic. And he alone is standing up against a reduction in price uh, in insulin. So I, I do think, I do think they, they have to recast it because voters are concerned about inflation. It's not clear that recasting it will do any good with the the literal one or two senators who are preventing this from happening. Yeah, uh, well, I want to get in as many questions as possible. So I'm going to move to uh, Earl Nemser. Are you still here? And you still have a question? Yes, I'm still here. I was wondering if anyone thinks yeah. that uh, the party will break the mold and pivot to another candidate in 24. And if so, who would it be other than Biden? Ooh, does anyone want to take that? Any volunteers? I'll take I'll take it just a little bit. Um, sure. and, and one thing really too quickly about the last question, Joe Biden needs to have an I feel your pain moment. And I think he started to do that with the State of the Union when he said we'll be okay. But he needs to get out there to, to Jane Harmon's point, be himself and have an I feel your pain moment because that works with people. If they feel like you're listening to them, then people will give you uh, a bit more grace when you, if you run up against obstacles and you can't achieve it, but at least they feel like you're fighting for them. That was part of the appeal with Trump. And I think a lot of us underestimated that. To this question, um, so I don't think Joe Biden is running again in 2024. I think we're in a very um, precarious situation with who the nominee could be, because what's interesting about this is that it, the presumptive nominee is not just Kamala Harris. Uh, I think a lot of people, normally, it would be the vice president, unless they say they didn't, they're not going to run again like um, Dick Cheney did. But usually, and um, uh, the veterans can correct me if I'm wrong, I don't believe that there's ever been a vice president that's sought the nomination um, and not gotten it of their own party. So what you're going to see, I think, is a, a Democratic absolute bloodbath in 2024 for that nomination if Joe Biden's not there. And, and I think a lot of people are seeing that the, are preparing for this battle between the, the center uh, moderate Democrats and the progressive wing. And we're seeing that play out a little bit right now. Um, but it's, it, it want, if Republicans take back control of the House, it, I think it's going to be um, uh, really difficult. I think the Democrats are going to run into the potential problem that Republicans had when they had too many people running 
um, for in the primary, and then they end up with a candidate that they that can't win a general election. So I, I think it's problematic. I have no idea who could possibly emerge, but I see this as being a, uh, a pol politically precarious for Democrats in 2024 without Joe Biden. Uh, if anybody on this call does know who the Democrats Alvin are, Barkley. Going to be in 2024, please, uh, please well, disclose it now. Separate uh, question, Molly. The, the vice president didn't get the nomination. Alvin Barkley in 1952 entered late, uh, didn't get it over Stevenson. And I quail sort of, you know, quail kind of looked at it and, and, and didn't, but didn't, and didn't do get it. off the ground. So yeah. th th there's a history. What's that? No, I said that. Thank you for the correction. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, who could forget? Um, Jill Iskall, we're going to go to you next. unless you have stepped away for a moment, which is understandable. Um, Franz Leichter, would you like to go next? Yeah. Oh, sorry, uh, I, my questions were answered. I'm sorry, I couldn't, okay, great. I couldn't unmute. Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you first for really such an informative and perceptive analysis. Um, my question is, there are some good aspects in the economy and so on, and has Biden, um, in his messaging, sufficiently uh, uh, shown that and addressed that? And in, um, in regard to Ukraine, it seemed to me in the, uh, in the, the State of the Union, uh, he could have made something more of a Churchillian-like statement uh, you know, blood, sweat, and tears. I don't know whether he really explained to the American people fully that democracy and the world order as it's existed since World War II are being challenged. Uh, I just wonder what you think about that. David, what do you think about that question? Well, I, I think it's now an, an article of faith among many scholars. <clears throat> that we we have a crisis, a growing crisis of democracy. Uh, that the attacks are having effect. That the nations that seem to be doing better, holding themselves together, tend to be more authoritarian. Uh, and I think that uh, I, I I would have argued that uh, in effect uh, that Biden needed two state of the unions. He wanted, needed one for the domestic, but he also needed one for the international. I, I'm really glad to see Jane Harmon there. I'd be curious about her views on that. Um, but I, I, at this point, listen. I think, I think it would. I think he needs to settle down and come to come forward in the next 60 to 90 days with two or three things he's agreed on with and mentioned and said. I'm. Ron, is it completely hopeless? That they can't sort of reach some agreement with Manchin, they could, they can all live with. It's a piece of the puzzle. It does seem to me Manchin has been in favor, publicly in favor of some of these things. But I would say get two or three of those things done, get more serious work done on the inflation front if if possible. But pay attention to what's going on internationally because this had it's like Afghanistan. The moral the moral questions are involved here transcend policy in many ways. Uh, I would say, but I really want to get Mo Molly, can, can we drag you out of your moderator role? I'd, I'd love you to answer David's question. I would give my answer real quick is there's obviously a deal to be had with Manchin if he wants to make a deal. I mean, there's no big substantive problem to making a deal, uh, even on the latest terms that he has put out, if he thinks it's his, in his advantage 
to to make a deal. But I think there are many Democrats who feel like he just wants he wants the more attention it gets, the more value it is to be ultimately to, to be the one who says no. Yeah. You know, but M Molly, what do you think? Do you think he will ultimately make a deal of any sort? Yeah, you know, uh, David was saying earlier that what has surprised him the most is 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 Biden's uh, failure to, to to communicate empathy. And I think what surprised me the most is that I really thought his superpower was going to be democratic unity, mm -hmm. given the way he performed in the primaries, right? When mm -hmm. he was sort of uniquely able to run as a moderate while also bringing Bernie and the progressives into the tent much more adeptly, say, than a Hillary Clinton. Um, and just given his long experience as a, as a player in the Democratic Party, uh, especially if you were to tell me that where he's fallen down is, is in his relations with congressional moderates, I find that really surprising. And what I hear from congressional Democrats, I mean, they're mostly mad at Manchin, uh, and cinema and, and and hold them responsible for for the failure of BBB, but they also feel like it really was Biden's job to to bring those uh, those players those actors to the table, uh, and he's sort of the only one who can do it. And and what you hear from from Manchin's camp is that they still don't fully feel like they've been uh, fed and watered adequately by the White House. Um, and there's and there's a level of mistrust there from the way things went down uh, at the end of, of 2021. Um, but um, I'm going to go to another question. I'd love to get uh, more more women asking questions. If anybody else has uh, has things they want to ask, but I'm going to go next to Bill Hubbard. Hi. Um, speaking of bringing uh, people together, uh, Biden has been praised on Ukraine for um, creating this big alliance, but he left out China. And my question is, do we have a hotline with presidency? And is it far-fetched to ask whether or to suggest that Biden get Xi on the phone and say, look, the two of us are the only people in the world that can persuade Putin to stop the carnage. And I think that would really, if he could somehow figure that out, like the big three did you know, in World War II at Yalta, um, uh, he would really up his uh, the, the prospects for his administration. Who wants to take that? I mean, David, do you? I don't. I don't know. Just sort of on a on a factual level, what the sort of red phone status is in in our relations with China. What, what do you think about that, David? My my understanding is that our top military guy uh, is in contact with their top military person. And similarly, it's had some outreach elsewhere, but that uh, Miley has been a really uh, important figure in keeping keep things together. Um, but listen, I, I think that what is really happening here and what I think one of the dangers we're now facing is, you know, uh, for, for years, the Republicans led, but Democrats agreed that it was an important strategy to split the Chinese across uh, away from the Russians. And that's why Kissinger, you know, went to China, and that's why Nixon went. But years were spent to try to to try to separate them out, and that became a very important part of our success um, internationally. But now, in the last two or three years, there there is a there the 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 way this is unwinding is Xi and the, and Putin are getting closer together. Mm -hmm. uh, China and Russia are getting closer together, and that is very dangerous. I mean, just in this last week, the Chinese issued a statement saying things are, you know, they, we're permanent friends, we're going to work together and so forth and so on, so as if the United States could be isolated off from that. And that is, that's really dangerous. Well, I want to add Trump to that. Oh, yeah, sorry. go ahead. Sorry, Ron. 
No, if I could just add to that really quickly, um, that is the, the, the problem here with, with China, because uh, China is looking at this from, from a long game. They've been laying the foundation for many years, ever since we gave them permanent normal trade relations and our economies became so intertwined and reliant on, on each other. Um, China has been laying the, the, the predicate for their eventual overtaking of the United States as far as uh, economic dominance in the world. And they've been building up their military and we see what's happening with their aggression in the South China Sea and building um, artificial islands for God knows what purposes. And, and um, you know, this, this idea of, of the, the Taiwan situation and, and the United States relationship there. Uh, you know, we train their pilots at Luke Air Force Base and, and our relationship with Taiwan is critically important. But the Chinese have been also, um, again, their, the leverage that they have over us versus Russia is considerable. Um, you know, the Chinese have been ingratiating themselves in Africa, in the Caribbean. They're setting up shop in places we wouldn't expect. They control over, I believe it's over 90% of the rare earth mineral mines in the, in the world, which we need for our products from satellites to our cell phones, to our cars. Um, so China and, and that situation um, is, is considerably more difficult to navigate at this point right now because of how intertwined our economy is with them versus with Russia. So there's that. And then also to David's point about China and Russia becoming closer, uh, China just signed a 30-year deal with Russia to, for, for Russia to provide energy to them. They are more and more um, getting in bed together on the energy front. Where did Russia go when we sanctioned them and, and, our, and our banks stopped with the transactions and Visa and MasterCard? They went to a Chinese alternate. And I think that there was a certain amount of agreement ahead of time. The Russians were anticipating what we would do. Maybe they didn't realize it was the sanctions would be this um, devastating, but they were preparing for this, offloading some of their rubles and their money and you know into China. Into China. So that, that is a much bigger geopolitical problem. Um, and I think a more of a challenge for, for Biden to navigate with China, given the military um, and hegemonic and economic aspirations of China and their, their leverage over us. Yeah, indeed. Uh, uh, sorry, go on. I guess, I guess I feel like none of this is surprising, right? I mean, you know, the, the US posture toward China has fundamentally changed since the Clinton and W and even maybe early Obama years when the dominant view was that integrating them into the world economy would moderate their both domestic and international policies. I remember uh, there was the figure, there used to be the figure touted David in, 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 in the, during the Clinton years of countries become a democracy once per capita income, you know, reaches yeah. a certain, a certain exactly. line. And that was the view and then that obviously, you know, it didn't happen. China got richer without becoming freer or, be, or, or behaving better internationally. And you began to see the pivot under Obama, interestingly, still in an internationalist mode where uh, he, he, he tried to build the Asian Pacific, uh, Trans-Pacific Trade Agreement uh, as a counter to China, ex explicitly leaving China out and uniting kind of the, um, the other nation, major Asian nations in a, in a economic and inherently political block to contain China. Um, and that was kind of the way station. And then we went to Trump, 
who was openly ingratiating toward Russia and more relentlessly hostile toward China, even while throwing out what Obama had built as kind of a regional um, alliance um, to, 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 to contain them. Uh, and then, you know, Biden comes in and drops, you know, some of the volcanic rhetoric, but largely runs on the idea that China uh, is, is a threat and a competitor. Um, so I don't think we can really plausibly be shocked that China is, you know, is moving closer to Russia. There is always going to be a certain number of nations that don't want to be part of an American-led Western world, right? I mean, it's just, and it is not shocking that they find ways to cooperate with each other. Uh, I think the, the the more, you know, the more uh, uh, what productive path for us, us is to figure out how to align the, the, the democracies and, you know, democratic friendly nations, de democratic curious nations of the world uh, uh, against these kind of autocracies uh, than it is to expect um, real, real cooperation. Now, admittedly, historically, China has been uh, scared, uh, you know, uh, skittish, about uh, cross-border invasions and such uh, overt violations of the kind of the global order because they feel that it could ultimately threaten them. But as David pointed out, their view on that, you know, maybe, uh, you know, maybe they, they are starting to view this as a precedent they can apply to Taiwan. But I, I don't think it's surprising that China is not a huge source of help for us in dealing with a kind of um, a revanchist Russia. Yes, although I will say that I, I do have the sense that you know you did see uh, uh, the you did see China potentially moving on Taiwan in the early days of the Ukraine invasion, and then they seem to have been somewhat chastened by uh, the overwhelming sort of unanimity of of the Russian of, of the Western response and to have backed off a little. Uh, but I want to go to uh, Claudine Baker now uh, for another question. You're still muted, still muted. Uh, okay. There you go. So I'm wondering, do you think that there's a question of physical frailty by which prevents Biden from being more effective? You know, when you watch him on TV, he can be so, as you say, great on his feet. And then he'll walk away awkwardly without taking any questions. And I just wonder if, if there is something going on that could be of a physical nature, whether you could respond to that. Who wants to take that? Uh, you know, I think I am unaware of any, you know, serious physical cognitive uh, issue, um, but clearly that is, you know, the, that, that is kind of uh, uh, seeped under the door uh, uh, once you have the doubts about, about his leaders, it's a very short step, you know, from people feeling that he's not a strong leader to feeling that he is not physically uh, up to the job. And, uh, he was able to, uh, you know, kind of keep those doubts at bay in, in the campaign. But I think as long as it feels that he is, it seems as if he's being buffeted by events, there are going to be people asking the question that you did, even if, there isn't really a clear, I, I, th th there's so far there's no indication that, that there is, but it's not surprising that people are asking it given their broader concerns about the way he's handling the presidency. Yeah. Um, uh, Ralph Dawson, let's go to you next for a question. 
Yes, uh, first of all, this panel has been outstanding. Um, a couple of quick questions for Mr. Brownstein. Assuming that 48 is the number you have to reach, how, can, how fast can seven points be made up? And can that be made up uh, by simply activating Democrats and some Republicans who are afraid of Trump? And then I would ask Mr. Gergen, uh, what could a coalition of the willing do? <laughs> could they fight Russia? Uh, could they just walk into Ukraine and sit there and dare the Russians uh, not to bomb them? And if we do that, what precedent are we setting for intervention and other conflicts in the future? David, you wanna- I wanna hear that, that first. Second yeah. one first, or let, let's go backwards and, 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 and tackle yes. the second part of that first, if you don't mind, David. Well, what can the coalition of the willing do? Yeah, what, what, are the, what are the actual options? Well, listen, first options of all, I think that within the UN, there had been lots of precedent about you know, what's, what's, what's tolerable and what's intolerable in the new world order. So there's a lot of provisions about, in general, about you know, what, the, what the Russians are doing being a genocide. You know, that, that, is, that in itself qualifies for very rough action by other players in, in the system. And I, you know, it, to me, is what, what's astonishing is that there's sort of an assumption that nobody has responsibility here. And then we just, we, we're gonna send over, you know, maybe we'll send over you know, various kinds of uh, armaments, but we're not gonna do anything beyond that. I can't understand why we're not looking for ways that the, a coalition of the willing could work together. Could they go in and protect these pathways out of, you know, that uh, the, the, the Russians keep offering you a chance to, to walk out, okay, to hike out. But then when you start hiking, they, they shell you. Could an international coalition protect people beyond the defensive, protecting people out of there? Could it be protective of, of, of children being, you know, hit in hospitals? I don't understand why these things are all out of bounds. Uh, well, and why... I mean, yeah, wouldn't, but, two words, wouldn't the two correct. words be nuclear weapons? I mean, there's a, yes, there's a risk, right? And there, the nuclear weapons thing is 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 in question. There's no question about that. Um, uh, although, you know, I, it just seems to me you could do some limited things that would be defensive in nature, that would not challenge the Russians per, uh, about the future of Ukraine or who's going to run what. There are so many lives at stake just from sheer, a sheer genocide that I just can't believe the international community will say, well, we can't solve it. We're going to walk away from it. We'll put it on television. That's it. So, Ron, what is the, the land speed record for uh, improving a president's approval rating by seven points? And oh, by the way, it's also in the middle of a, a global pandemic, historic inflation and potentially World War Three. Yeah, well, there you go. I mean, I think I look, I, I uh, uh, you you got to get probably to 47, maybe 48. Um, uh, can he do that in individual states? It doesn't seem out of the question, except while inflation is this high, um, uh, it's going to be hard with the broad public. Maybe the more relevant question is, does the electorate reflect the broad public or not, right? So in 2004, 
uh, I think everyone agreed that Bush generated an electorate that was more favorable toward him and more Republican leaning than the country overall. Uh, and his approval rating on election day was definitely higher, two point, not vastly higher, but like two points higher than it was in any of the polling leading into the election. In fact, Mark McKinnon, there's a great exchange I have with him in, in, in that second civil war book from 15 years ago, in which he says, our problem was that basically only 48 to 49% of the country agreed with us. Like, how do we, how do you win in that environment? And they were able to, you know, change who voted. There's a guy named Mike Pothoser who's the senior uh, political advisor at the AFL-CIO. And he points out all the time uh, that uh, according to the data of Catalyst, which is the premier democratic targeting firm, there are 90 million separate individuals, I think 92 million separate individuals who voted against Trump in one of the three previous elections, 2016, 2018, and 2020. Democrats probably need 55 million people, 55 million votes to have a, a plausible, a, a decent midterm. So uh, on the one hand, History says that if you are as weak with independence as Biden is now, you lose a lot of seats in a midterm. Um, the 94, 2010, and 2014 Republican gains and the 2006 and 2010, uh, 2006 and 2018 Democratic gains, the party had a double digit lead with independence. And probably Biden does have to improve with those voters before November to keep this within range for Democrats. But there is also the other option which is kind of the Bush 04 model where Democrats are able to activate more people than usual from their side to turn out in a midterm because the core problem for the president's party in midterms going back to the 1870s is that yeah, yeah. The, the party holding the White House, their voters feel less urgency about voting than the party out of the White House. I mean, there's a reason why the president's party has lost seats in all but three midterms since 1870. Um, uh, and, and, and it's, I think the, the best explanation for political scientists and analysts is that there's a disparity in urgency. So perhaps a differential turnout can, can solve the problem, but more likely given the, the, the power of that differential turnout through history, it is gonna require Biden to get, to get some, regain some ground with independence. And that's not easy to do when gas costs $5 a gallon. Can I just Good. add something really quickly to yeah. that? Yeah. Um, Nate Cohn came out today and was talking about um, the generic congressional ballot isn't as bad for Democrats as it was um, a couple of months ago. So that there's still some hope there that the just the fundamentals of the uh, a lot of people thought that with gerrymandering and redistricting that this was going to be horrible for Democrats and it's turned out not to be as bad. But the other the point to about enthusiasm and lack thereof. The reason why I say this is not going to be a policy um, midterm is because the Republicans are very good at getting that um, enthusiasm up because they use the culture war. The way the Democrats can come back at them is, is Donald Trump is on the ballot no matter what. They have to nationalize the election. Democracy is on the ballot. Do you want to go back to what, we, what you just voted against in 2020? Because that's what's going to happen if you're not if you're not activated and going out there to vote. This idea of apathy within the Democratic Party frustrates me to no end because I feel as though do, are they not paying attention to what's happening all over the country with Republicans? And some of the candidates that Republicans are putting up are pretty out there. 
and Republicans will take one or two of the of the of the Democratic candidates that are on the margins, and they will nationalize that whole thing. If we remember in 2010, what brought the Tea Party in? They, my good friend Michael Steele, when he ran the RNC, they did a, a tour and made it all about Nancy Pelosi, and it didn't matter whether it was in in you know North Carolina or whether it was in Wisconsin. It was about Nancy Pelosi, and she was the villain. So. Democrats have an opportunity here to make the Republican Party out to be as batshit crazy as some of the most crazies that are running out there in ways to say, listen, is the, are these the people you want in power? Because Republicans will not hesitate to do it. And that should, if it needs, if you need to scare people into going to the, to the ballot box, whatever you need to do to get them motivated to go to, to get there and go. But the thing about it is it happens to be true what the threats are to our way of life and our democracy if you allow these people back in power. That's what they've got. They've got to do that. And I think that can, that can motivate folks. Remind them, we have short memories in this country. Remind them of what life was like before. Uh, we're running out of time. A lot of great questions. I do want to get to uh, Bernard Schwartz. Go ahead. I find this conversation uh, very demeaning um, for me. The Democratic Party has had tremendous victories since the Biden administration. Just think of what they uh, what he can talk about. The end. The economy has been much better than we ever thought. In the last fourteen months, the economy has been fantastic. Um, we have more employment than we ever had for a very, very long time. Uh, he's been shown himself as a global leader of extraordinary competence in bringing together the whole part of the non-Russian uh, world. Um, and most important of all, he got an infrastructure bill, $1 trillion, that's waiting to be deployed and hire people create jobs. That's what the American people want. They talk about these other things, and the press does, but in the last analysis, when it comes down to elections, the man who has food on the table and has a job to go to and has a pension, he is going to vote for the party that's in power. Uh, this administration has done an extraordinary amount to achieve those good things. Inflation is a problem, and it's a manageable problem going forward in a good economy. The problem is messaging. The president doesn't know how to talk about this. And second to the president, he has nobody on his staff who talks about these things. I've been working with the, with the administration in terms of setting up a program for, on infrastructure and how the job creation is going to mean to the working person. And I have to tell you, the administration is as slow as you can imagine in getting that going. The only person talking for the, the, the administration is the president. And he does that rarely. And we should do something about it. As Democrats, we should get them on the stick. You're not the first person I've heard express that, that, that frustration, but but how about it? I mean, David, I'll throw it to you unless someone else wants to take it. Um, I, I, I also hear some debate from within the administration about should they be out there like, like Trump was every day saying the economy's great, you've got to give me credit for it. Or does that risk being seen as insensitive to, to people who are still struggling? Do they have to express a little bit more humility, a little bit more modesty, given, uh, given that there are still problems out there? 
I thought David Axelrod had a good column in the Times before the State of the Union about the importance of humility. Uh, I, th I think I think rather than using a bully pulpit to say how wonderful all the wonderful things he's done, you, you can overdo that. I think the more important thing is to explain to people what he's trying to do now about the future, how he wants to shape the future, how important it is we handle inflation in a certain way, how important it is we deal with medical. You, you know, have two or three issues uh, that, that Bernard just you know suggested. I, th I think that's really important. Yes, as a secondary uh, focus, you do want to be telling people about you know what's been accomplished. But I think right now people want to hear more hope about the future. Uh, we are. Can I just add something really quick? Wanna, sorry, really, really quickly to that. Yeah, it is all about messaging. As you know, uh, as the a political communications messaging person for the last twenty seven years. It doesn't matter what's true. It's mattered how people perceive it. Um, and if they don't get that message out in some way to make it relatable every day to people, they're not going to care. And they can say all they want, how all of these successes, people don't feel that that's successful when they're staring at five, $5 a gallon or maybe six, depending on where you live, for gas. That doesn't matter if there's full unemployment. It doesn't matter if, if you know, they passed the COVID relief package that helped businesses. None of that matters because they see the, the problems in front of them. And if, and if the Democrats and Biden don't do a better job of explaining um, how they are, it's the I feel your pain moment that I mentioned before. That, that is Biden's secret sauce. So to Jane Harmon's point in the beginning, he has to start being himself more. And that's what people relate to. They will give you grace if you if you demonstrate that you are working on their behalf and you explain it to them in simple terms. That works. It works. You know, I I want to give an, an opportunity to I if 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 people have to go, I apologize. I'm going to take a little moderator's privilege and get to our last three questioners, but I am going to hold you each to, to 30 seconds. I'm going to have all three of you, Bob, John, and Len, go in sort of a lightning round and then throw it to the panel for one uh, one last closing comment uh, uh, before we all get out of here. So, um, so Bob Wyman, go ahead, please. Yeah, back in the 70s, we learned in the oil embargo that if we rely on fossil fuels, we're subject to international blackmail and thuggery and financing of, of bad people. We kind of lost that message and forgot about it for a long time. But in recent days, it seems like people are really beginning to remember again that uh, being subject to the petrofuggery is not a good thing. Ron mentioned that we might repackage the climate stuff as a way to reduce utility bills. Might it not be better to repackage the climate stuff as national security measures? Essentially say, it doesn't matter if this stuff is good for the climate. The, these things like the tax credits and the climate provisions in the Build Back Better Act, they're good and necessary for national and international security. Thank you for that. Uh, John, go ahead, please. Well, the focus of this is on Biden's problems, but the question is, don't the Republicans have worse problems? Aren't they at a, in a civil war at this point, partially around all of the, the uh, January 6th last election uh, hmm. presidential questions and partially around Putin and, and Ukraine. And isn't there, from their view, a real risk that they're going to nominate people for House races, at least, uh, that just can't make it through the general election? Thank you very much. And Len DeLuca, take us home. You're muted. Oh, still muted. 
We're unmuted go. and um, uh, still count me down from 20 seconds. <laughs> we are, um, we had hoped for competence, uh, particularly with this administration after the joke of the previous four, but we haven't gotten it. So my question, and I think uh, uh, Mr. Gergen, uh, David was getting near it. Who replaces Ron Klain? Because this has been a disaster. And who is the baker or the Carville who comes next? Thank you, Molly. Thank you, Len. All right, David, uh, closing thoughts and potentially an answer to, uh, to any of those three questions. Well, I, 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 I know Ron Klain not well, um, but I do think that the Democrats have to, you know, have to come together and figure this out. Do they want a new team in there just before the uh, general or, or the midterm elections or not? You know, I think Ron Brancy might well argue that's a real danger to you if you, you in effect, uh, plead guilty for not having a staff that you should have uh, when you go into the midterm. So it's a, that's a hard question. I don't think it's easily answered. Uh, I do think the best thing the Democrats have going for them is Donald Trump and the Republicans. And we haven't spoken enough about that tonight because we have so many other things. Uh, but I, I do think, you know, just on Ukraine alone, for example, I think to drive home the question, if you had, we had this situation with Trump versus Biden, which one would you want to have in the White House helping to make decisions? I think Biden would win that hands down. Mm -hmm. So I, I do think that uh, that that it's, it's worth keeping a focus on the fact that you you think that, uh, you know, some people try to ask about, uh, about Biden's mental acuity. We had that question about that. We're in this very strange place where there are three international leaders. You know, it's Biden, Trump, and Putin, all three have questions surrounding them about their mental acuity and whether they're balanced and whether they could blow up the world. That's just a remarkable thing. But to have Trump out there once again on the ballot, I think is a god godsend for, for Democrats. I think he's the Republican Party is coming more and more afraid as they figure try to figure out how to live with Trump. As the, former, yeah. as the former the walking Republican. example of that. Yeah. <laughs> yes, the, the former Republican on this panel, I agree 100%. I said that earlier that uh, Democrats have an opportunity here as long as Donald Trump remains the titular head of the Republican Party. And um, they should be held, Republicans should be held to account for the, um, for the positions the party has taken, what they've tolerated, uh, what Donald Trump represents, and should demonstrate the contrast between Trump and Biden. Lincoln Project just put out today an ad reminiscent, and David and, and Ron will appreciate it, of the 3 MN, the 3 a.m. phone call. Um, you know, who did you want to answer that call? Biden has answered that call, and we need to back him and that, that get, get some momentum behind backing what he's doing as president of the United States and leader of the free world in this moment. Why aren't Democrats doing that? Where are the Democratic super PACs? They should be out there. They should be the surrogates here. It doesn't always have to come from the White House. Republicans are very good at learning how to disseminate the messaging to their messengers all over the place. So um, I agree 100% that, uh, that having nationalizing the, the election with Trump at the helm and reminding people why they voted Joe Biden in and that he is, in fact, uh, competent. You don't want to go back. Um, you don't want to go back to that is uh, something that could make up that gap. And um, democracy, once again, it is a binary choice that democracy, our democracy is on the ballot. And we are not that far off from being in a position where we could lose it the same way that the Ukrainians are fighting for it now. 
And that that's a powerful message. I think the American people need to fully understand and embrace because it's real. Absolutely. All right, uh, Ron, parting thoughts from you. And, and I'd particularly love to know if you have a thought on that last question. Does, the, does there need to be a White House shakeup on the staff level? Well, let, let me start with the middle question. I, I mean, I, it is hard to overstate the radicalism that, that is kind of taking over the Republican Party. Uh, I've been writing a lot about, again, in the Atlantic today, in the 23 Republican-controlled states um, uh, where Republicans have unified control of government, we are seeing, I think, a project that amounts to an attempt to unravel the rights revolution of the past 60 years. I mean, the ba basic trend of national policy since the 60s has been to nationalize more rights, uh, abortion, privacy, Title IX, uh, 64 Civil Rights Act, ADA, uh, and to limit the, the divergence uh, from state to state. And what we are watching now with the support of Republicans on the Supreme Court and the Republicans using the Senate is just this incredible onslaught in red states rolling back abortion rights, voting rights, LGBTQ rights, First Amendment rights of teachers and students to talk about race and gender and sexual orientation, um, tougher penalties for protesters, just a whole wave of um, uh, you know pretty pretty draconian restrictions and and attempts to kind of as I say revert us to a pre 1960s world where your basic civil rights and civil liberties depended on, on on where you live so there are plenty of targets here and as there are at the national level with the kind of extremism that Marjorie Taylor Greene represents and that Trump as as we've been talking about personally embodies. The problem Democrats have in the near term is that midterm elections are really, truly choice elections. They, they tend to be primarily a referendum on the party in power. And that's why I think the critical variable is, there are exceptions. I mean, there are Senate races like Sharon Angle and, and uh, the, the, the witch in Delaware, where you can nominate a candidate so extreme that they can't win a winnable seat. But by and large, uh, midterm elections tend to uh, revolve much more around just an up or down judgment on the president and the party, especially when there's unified control uh, of government. All of this, I think, is back on the table and relevant for 2024. And, and I think there will be more voters who will kind of question whether after, Jan particularly if Trump himself is on the ballot, um, they will look at January 6th as kind of a, a, a flash forward uh, from, uh, you know, from, from lost as a kind of a picture of what they might get. So I, I don't think there's, there, there should be a White House shakeup between now and November. I think it's inevitable there will be one after November, especially if they lose the House. I mean, I, you know, that's kind of the, the pattern that we have, that we have seen you, you know, and, and it'll be interesting to see. I mean, uh, Barack Obama brought in Bill Daley because originally he thought he was going to be making deals with the Republican Senate, um, Republican Congress, um, Republican House, excuse me. Um, and, and, you know, it turned out he was not, you know, the, the deals didn't didn't work. I, I you know, I, I could imagine I, Pete Buttigieg would be an excellent White House chief of staff someday. I always thought he would be a good choice for the job. I don't think you can really pin this on claim, though. I mean, I think like any White House chief of staff, he has made he has made his missteps. I think the bigger problem is that Biden fundamentally misjudged how much damage cinema and mansion were willing to do to him. Um, can I just address real quickly the fossil fuel thing? That is a very logical argument. You are hearing the exact opposite argument from Republicans led by Marco Rubio and Portman and others, uh, including Joe Manchin. Uh, every day saying that the lesson of this is that we have to produce more domestic oil and gas. Um, and so I'm not sure that the, the kind of international thuggery changes the core dynamic 
that, that we are facing, which is that you, know, you, you have the states that are the big fossil fuel producers, whether it's oil, gas, or natu oil, natural gas, or coal, overwhelmingly send Republicans to Congress who overwhelmingly oppose any action, not overwhelmingly, uniformly oppose any action on the climate. And I don't see this breaking that deadlock. So uh, the broader point, I, I don't see what is breaking our deadlock, our broader deadlocks. I mean, you know, the, the, the bigger story of the last 55 years is that neither party can build a sustained advantage over the other. I see nothing in the near term that's going to change that. And so we are, we are caught in this position where we are closely divided, but really deeply divided. And that is just a formula for the kind of volatility that we're living through. Well, that's a great note to end on. Thank you so much, everyone, for sticking with us for an hour and 41 minutes. I think we could have gone on uh, for another hour and 41 minutes at least. Um, Patricia, I'll throw back to you. Uh, this was outstanding, really outstanding. I think I, 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 I'd love to have you guys over the breakfast table just to continue this discussion. I think we could almost uh, run it that long, but thank you so much. It was outstanding. I'd love to have you all back. Um, I always let the uh, group uh, ask the questions, but one of these days I also want to get into, I think there's a real schism developing in the Democratic Party. It's not all Joe Manchin, and I'm worried about the uh, some kind of a break in the Democratic Party as we've seen in the Republican Party. Um, but you have been outstanding. Tara, Molly, Ron, David, thank you so much. I hope we can see you again um, sooner rather than later. And um, for everybody else, we really appreciate you coming to our upcoming events. Uh, we're going to talk about the Women's uh, American Museum of History, which we're very excited about. Um, Gen Z voters with John Delavolpe, and we're going to talk about Ukraine and how this ends on March 31st. So stick with us. We hope to see you soon. Thank you so much.